first off, Dr. Pakal, I just wanted to say thank you so much. We're so honored that you are up for taking some time out of your busy schedule and coming on the podcast today. So thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me, Cassie. Oh, I'm glad. I know I can think of so many women right off the bat that are just going to be so excited to hear what you have to say and to learn a little bit more about our topic, which is vulvodynia. Something that in my opinion really isn't talked about nearly enough, or a lot of people might not even know what it is. So again, so lucky to have you. Thanks. Now, before we kind of narrow down our chat and really laser focus on vulvodynia, can you first tell us a bit about what you do at Queens and your work at the sex lab? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a professor of psychology at Queens University, um, and I run a research lab called the Sexual Health Research Laboratory, Sex Lab for short. And we do a variety of studies um, online, in person, that tackle many different aspects of sexuality and relationships. Um, but really, um, uh, at the core are our studies looking at these conditions um, that affect people's sexuality and that are really just grossly misunderstood and not well known. And so we really try to dig into um, different areas within these conditions in order to educate the public, validate the experience for the patients who are experiencing these conditions and inform healthcare. Um, and as a second role, um, I also am the director of the Sex and Relationship Therapy Service, which is run out of the Queen Psychology Clinic. Um, and so we actually see people um, for sexual, gender, and relationship issues as well. So I do both the clinical side and the research side, um, which really keeps me happy and, and busy, but you know, ultimately feeling like I have my feet in both worlds that are of great importance to people um, who have conditions that they need help with and they need information on, so. Absolutely. And now with COVID, have you guys shifted to virtual appointments for the, the one side of it anyway? Yes, for the clinical service, we are virtual. Um, and then for the research, um, I had mentioned we also do in-person research, <laughs> but obviously those were on hold for quite a while. We've just slowly restarted some of our in-person research, but um, we have actually increased the amount of online research that we're doing. And in fact, we are running uh, a massive COVID-19 study Ooh. looking at the effects and, you know, associations with sexuality and relationships. And that's a longitudinal study. So we actually tried to also capitalize on trying to understand, you know, what, like, how does a pandemic actually affect people uh, in terms of their, you know, in terms of their stress levels, their mood, but it particularly in terms of the outcomes in terms of sexuality and research. So... That's amazing. That'll be really interesting. And because it's online, can people come from anywhere to do it? Can it be worldwide or is it just Canada? Yeah. As long as people have access to the internet for any of our online studies and they're fluent in English. And sometimes we were in studies in French as well. Um, but as long as they are fluent in the language, they have access to the internet and they're comfortable ultimately with answering questions about sexuality and sometimes body parts and gender identity and things like yeah. that then yeah, absolutely. And so people could find out more about the studies that are currently going uh, on uh, by visiting uh, www.sexlab.ca, so. Awesome, ooh, I love it. We'll definitely have to check that out and, and tag, tag a post with that info in it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay, so moving a little bit more on to today's topic, we're gonna talk about vulvodynia. Can you tell us what exactly that is? Yes, yeah, so vulvodynia is a general term that describes vulvar pain. So vulva is the sort of external genitals um, of someone who would be considered to be female in terms of their birth assigned sex. Um, that So pain that is chronic in the vulva that is not actually able to be medically explained. So it's not due to, let's say, an infection or inflammation um, or any kind of condition that could lead to vulvar pain. It's sort of, the pain is there, it's been there for at least three months, and we're not entirely sure why it's there. Okay, so it's just a generalized term for pain of the vulva, really? Yes. For an extended length of time, so over three months. Yes, and that can't be medically explained. And then can't be medically explained, perfect. Is it very common? 
actually it's much more common than a lot of people will think. And so we have really good prevalence studies showing that uh, quite a large range of people um, who have vulvas will have vulvodynia at some point in their lives. Um, the estimates that um, I've been able to dig up from really well done surveys are anywhere between 10 to 28%, which is wow. actually quite staggering um, in terms of the amount of people this will affect um, across a lifetime. Wow, that's huge. I was I, I was actually just having a conversation about something else with someone earlier this week, and we were talking about one in ten being the number, yeah. and and sometimes I don't think people realize how large that really can be. I was reading, and I don't know if there's a hundred percent truth to this, but a stat that one in ten women use a dating app, and I mean we've all known someone that uses a dating app, right? And so if you actually compare it to something like that, yeah. you realize how large that ten to twenty eight percent really can be. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I would think more than one in 10 women use the dating app, but that's just I know maybe those have changed now. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, really, that's a good metric to sort of base this on, right? It's sort of like everybody uses dating apps maybe, and maybe it's one in 10, but then that's the lower bound estimate of that vulvodynia prevalence, right? So absolutely. And how it, many people out there may be experiencing these things, but maybe not talking about it. Exactly. And that's a huge issue. Um, a lot of people think it's normal to have pain. Mm -hmm. A lot of people know that perhaps it isn't, but are just too shy to bring it up with a healthcare provider. Other people brave it. They talk to their healthcare provider and then it's sort of a dead end because not much is known mm -hmm. by that healthcare provider. And there are, are multiple other um, issues wrapped up in this, um, you know, whether you're in, um, you know, a country that has socialized medicine, you know, or not, like there's mm -hmm. access to care issues, there's all sorts of things that are wrapped up um, in terms of um, the intersectionalities of barriers that kind of get in the way of, you know, sort of communicating and accessing appropriate health care. Absolutely. So you said 10 to 28% is kind of what we're thinking is something that women with a vulva will experience or will experience it. Now, does that mean they develop this over time or do some people have it from the onset? Both. Yeah. <laughs> Both. So there's, there's, there are many different kinds of vulvodynia, but um, you know, I'll sort of talk about sort of the issue that you raised, um, which is some people actually have vulvodynia from the very first time they are aware of sensations in their vulva or, you know, from first penetrative attempt. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual penetration. It could be tampon insertion. It could be something, you know, something, something else. Um, so we call that primary vulvodynia where the pain has been around um, as long as the person can remember um, in terms of specific activities, um, you know, that they may engage in or just kind of spontaneously. And then there's sort of the second big class, which is secondary uh, vulvodynia, which is where everything was okay up until a certain time and then the pain developed. So it developed kind of, you know, after a period of pain-free vulva experiences. So that's what we call secondary. Um, and typically what we'll see is that those who have the primary form are fair worse actually in terms of the severity, in terms of treatment outcome than those who have secondary um, vulvodynia. And we're not entirely sure why, and we're not even really sure if there are different kind of causal or ideological pathways for the primary versus the secondary. Um, you know, there it would make sense that there would be, uh, but if there are, we're not entirely sure what they are. Do we know what causes vulvodynia then? Well, you know, um, not, well, yes and no, I suppose. <laughs> um, you know, those, like, we all want really black and white, very simple explanations mm -hmm. about things. And, you know, really, we never get them, you know, if we look at things in a real, really realistic way. Um, so there are certainly um, risk factors and there are certainly correlates and associations that we will see, but we don't really have a definitive sort of etiology. The, the best guess in the field right now, um, which is based on decades of research, is that 
um, there are a variety of factors that have to come together in order for vulvodynia to sort of be expressed in an individual. Um, and so, and that these factors may differ from one person to another. Um, and we're not, you know, and that's as far as we can get, but there are inflammatory sort of indicators in most people. Uh, there are muscular factors in most people. There are historical sort of factors in most people, um, such as, you know, a history of um, mood disorders like depression and anxiety, a history of, you know, sexual and physical sort of abuse uh, early in childhood. Um, there could be, you know, sort of early use of uh, hormonal contraceptives as well. That's also a risk factor. But this doesn't necessarily mean that people who have, let's say, used hormonal contraceptives um, early on will necessarily develop vulvodynia. So it increases risk, but it's not necessarily sufficient for the development of that. And on the flip side, um, you know, that doesn't mean, and, and tons of people are on hormonal contraceptives and mm -hmm. will never have pain, right? Um, there are also hormonal factors that may play a role. And this may just all sort of you know, develop based on people's genetics and their predispositions, as well as other conditions that they may have that may sort of open a gateway to developing vulvodynia. Um, so, you know, we have lots of different ideas, mm -hmm. uh, but to actually pinpoint and say, this is it, um, I think is going to be a question that well, we won't be able to answer, um, but we're able to sort of, you know, gauge risk in certain times in certain ways, but doesn't necessarily mean we'll always be perfectly accurate in terms of our predictions as to who will Fair. get it. Yeah. So it seems there's more just a constellation of risk factors that kind of together almost create a perfect storm, if you will. <laughs> yeah, perfect storm in that horrible way, right? So in, right. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And so you mentioned kind of some of the risk factors. Are, what are, are there any like major ones that always stick out or is it just, like you said, it's different for every woman and it's kind of hard to pinpoint those major risk factors? Yeah, there are two that sort of stand out in the literature. And one is something I've already mentioned, which is that early use of oral contraceptives in particular. We haven't quite gotten to sort of the bigger class of hormonal contraceptives at this point. Um, so things like the NuvaRing and things like that. Um, so like early use of oral contraceptives seems to be associated with an increased risk and quite a large increased risk. Um, there may be something with the uh, vulvar tissue, there may be something with the estrogen sort of depletion being on that particular um, oral contraceptive that may increase that factor. But again, it's not necessarily insufficient and it's probably not the only, so, not, not the only um, answer to this question, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it causes it, right? It seems as if this is associated with it, but there may be other things that need to be in that perfect storm in order for vulvodynia to brew. Um, the other thing that we see in the literature um, is in sort of this, uh, this history of repeated yeast infections. Okay, and again, lots of people have yeast infections, like, and by repeated, I mean like three or more per year. Um, and we're not entirely sure if it's sort of the vaginal environment that predisposes, you know, to the yeast that, and then there's some kind of extra link to developing pain here, or if it's treatments that are undertaken to treat those yeast infections. Um, and again, many people will have repeated um, yeast infections and not develop vulvodynia, but mo like a lot of people who have this in their background will go on to develop vulvodynia. So, okay. and again, we're not sure if it's the treatments, we're not sure if it's something, you know, in that kind of environment um, that is just sensitizing that skin in a, in a way that predisposes it to pain. Um, so we're not entirely sure, but those are the two most frequent ones that we will see um, sort of pop up in the literature that people who have this, you know, who have vulvar pain, we can ask those questions and sort of delve into, um, delve into that kind of those experiences for those individuals. Um, but um, we also see that it's highly comorbid with sort of uh, painful bladder conditions such as interstitial cystitis. And so that's another one that seems to sort of be linked. 
um, with sort of vulvodynia, but again, we're not sure what develops first, if there's something that kind of leads to the co-development of these two things. If it's something in the urine, we, we don't really know. It's just all these associations. Yeah. And it's really hard to tease everything out at that point. Right. And things have so many overlapping symptoms. And so, so really, I think, is it even possible that we'll know that answer hundred percent. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think we could know. And you know, when people come and they're like, yeah, but I need to know what causes it, cause this, I need to know it. It's, and it's almost like having that conversation and trying to understand why there is that need to know and why it's so strong and opening up to saying, you know, like, I don't know if we'll ever know. And we'll be able to answer that question. But the good news is that we do have treatments. We do know what this is about. Like we have decades of research on this um, and we could get you on a path that will make this pain a lot less sort of interfering, a lot less central in your life. Um, and, you know, we can help restore that sexuality piece that may be sort of flailing about, you know, because of the pain, the pain association in the vulva, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it echoes a conversation I'm always having with clients and, and I find some clients find it really helpful to hear this, whereas others don't find it so helpful, but it's similar to what you said. So uh, whether it's MSK or pelvic floor, I'll often say, you know what? I don't know if we'll have an answer. We don't, I don't know if I'll, I'll be able to tell you that exact time and day or that reason that this happened, but what we're left with is kind of how your body's functioning and moving and, and working right now. And if we have today's baseline and we know how that is, then we can move forward, but our body will always adapt and change and compensate. So, so it's more important to treat kind of how you are now and your current, like I said, baseline. And some people find that really comforting because they're like, okay, as long as I know I'm making strides, but I know sometimes it's hard not having a reason. Absolutely. Yeah. But in, in chronic pain, like that, it, that is unfortunately like people mix up acute and chronic pain. So mm -hmm. acute pain is sort of like, I cut my, I cut the palm of my hand, you know, and it really hurts. And once that injury resolves, the pain will go away. A ch chronic pain is okay. The pain may have started with that cut. Uh, it's now healed. But guess what? The pain is no longer where that cut was. The pain is now being taken over by things that we can't easily see, like tiny mechanisms and different kinds of body-wide changes in terms of our central nervous system. So guess what? It may have started there, but now it has a life of its own and it's really hard to pinpoint. So we kind of have to work on like the psychology, the muscle piece, you know, the tissue, like all of these things together um, in order to move forward um, from this pain, you know, it's like, yeah, to move forward away from, you know, sort of being stuck, you know, with the, the cause of the pain and being stuck, you know, in terms of all of the fallout from that pain to be able yeah. to move forward. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I want to follow up on that down the road, but I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. You Great. mentioned um, early use of birth control. So oral birth control, what would early be considered? So in the studies that I've been able to pull up on this, uh, around the age of 14, actually. So, okay. yeah. And I know, and you might not know the answer to this, but I know many people who on those early years are being treated with oral contraceptives, but not for a, like, not for a birth control reason. Um, do you know if they're starting to change that so that they're not creating this early risk factor? Um, unfortunately, I don't think so. <laughs> From okay. what I know, it seems as if, you know, they're, they're, you know, that oral contraception is still being used with hor with the hormonal component is still being used um, quite regularly and still prescribed quite regularly, unfortunately. Okay. But okay. at the same time, like, right. you kind of have to balance, right? Like, an unwanted pregnancy is also a massive chaotic mess right of course so you kind of have to balance um but let's say people tell me oh yeah the pain started at around the time that i started on you know sort of this pill um i could say well how about we have a conversation about working out in terms of still keeping you protected from pregnancy and stis but maybe getting off the pill at the same time to see is your pain better? And then we can kind of take those off the list, you know, for your contraceptive and STI protective needs and look at alternative ways of, you know, protecting yourself, right? With barrier methods and other things. I mean, they, they come up with new contraceptives all the time. Like IUDs are 
super effective and they don't necessarily have to have hormones in them. Right. And so there are other things that we have that we can actually, um, you know, recommend, um, and within that really validating context of let's try, but let's also protect you from the stuff you were on the pill for from the very beginning. Absolutely. Okay. That makes sense. And then, so we know the vulvodynia is kind of that chronic vulvar pain lasting over three months. It's not right. Not medication, all that stuff. What, so what would people experience? Like, what are the symptoms? How would someone know that they might possibly have this condition? Hmm, Well, I guess now is a good time to talk about some of the subtypes of vulvodynia. So I guess we'll just focus on the two main ones because those are sort of the most common. So the, the, the most common subtype of vulvodynia is something that we call provoked vestibulodynia. So um, this is pain that, you know, um, if I had this, I'm sitting here talking to you um, and there's nothing actually pressing sort of on my vulva um, that I wouldn't be in pain right now. But any time there would be any kind of activity such as bicycle riding um, or, you know, um, an internal pelvic exam or sexual activity involving penetration, um, that the pain would kind of come, it's provoked. You know, it's not there all the time. It, it is elicited um, when there is pressure in that particular area. And that particular area is the entrance of the vagina. It's called the vestibule. Um, much like sort of like when you go into a house or a building, you and the first place you step in where you may be able to take off your coat, that's called the vestibule, right? So it's sort of like the entrance to the main part, I suppose, the main part being the, the vagina in many cases. Um, you know, so it, um, it in, so that is provoked vestibulogenia. So the pain is usually described as burning or sharp or cutting. Uh, but not all the time, but those are the most common words that are used. And the pressure, and when pressure is applied there, that pain can be very, very intense. And um, any kind of activity that would result, so sexual, non-sexual, um, any kind of pressure that would would result, you know, in pressure to that vestibule will be painful for um, people who have vestibulogenia, provoked vestibulogenia. The second main type um, is, but the most of, so just backing up to PVD or provoked vestibulodynia, most of the time people will come to us and say, it hurts when I'm having penetrative sex with my partner. That is what brings people in. They can maybe tolerate tampon insertion. They can probably grin and bear it through, you know, the every couple of years internal pelvic exam, but it's, it's penetrative intercourse penetration of the vagina that that brings them in because for some reason um, when they're expecting pleasure and they're getting pain and and especially with sort of this you know sexual script that really puts the penetrative part of sex kind of as the primary part of sex and the only Mm -hmm. thing that counts like there's a lot of distress or like I just can't have sex well there's lots of narratives around here that are just heterocentric they're very you know, cisgender, I won't get into those right now, but that's usually what brings people is in, they say, I have pain during intercourse. And then we can get a good idea just from that conversation that, you know, perhaps this is what we're discussing. So we, we ask all of these follow-up questions. Now, the second main subtype of vulvodynia is something called generalized vulvodynia. Um, and so this is vulvar pain that kind of spans most or all of the vulva. And typically this will present sort of in a, an unprovoked way such that the pain is usually there or it's always there. So you can imagine sort of the fallout in terms of daily life, in addition to sexuality, um, of people who have this kind of burning, this, you know, irritating sensation around most of their vulva for most of the day or all of the day. So things such as even sitting down, walking, driving a car, anything having to do with any any like like the vulva is part of your body it's part of your core it's involved in everything right definitely so you can imagine the fallout in terms of you know um fallout in terms of their daily their day-to-day functioning in addition to that sexuality piece and unfortunately some people can actually have both the provoked and the unprovoked pain which then you know really leads to even more interference um (laughs) with sexuality and with the day-to-day 
obviously for some people it's more provoked symptoms, whereas others are just kind of always there. Yes. Is there for the people who have symptoms more generally or more consistently, I should say, is there flare-ups of those condition of those symptoms? Do they go through a pattern? Is there any predictability to these flare-ups? Is it cyclical? Is it random? Yeah, those are really, really good questions. And I would say all of the above, you know, and so part of the work that we do um, with people who have vulvodynia is we ask them to kind of keep, you know, a log of their pain. Um, And what we see with the more generalized and spontaneous, like, you know, kind of pain is that it's usually better in the morning. And then as the day goes on, it gets worse. Um, Some people will report sort of these breakout flares, um, but not everybody. Uh, where, you know, it just becomes so unbearable. It's like kind of like a kind of a steady state. And then these flares, you know, that kind of happen unpredictably. Um, And that may be once a day, it may be once a week, it may be once a month, but the flares are very bad and they could last long time, short time. Um, And then sometimes we see sort of this cyclical pattern where, you know, it, it may just be related to maybe hormones where things are, sort of stable in terms of like a pain that's manageable, but then it shoots up, you know, for two weeks of the month. And, you know, we really try to sort of understand uh, what those patterns are. And then we're able to kind of help uh, during the the bigger kind of pain flares or those increases. Um, And so sometimes people have, you know, patterns and sometimes it really is very unpredictable where on any given day, um, they're not really sure what to expect, which then really speaks to that uncontrollability and sort of that unpredictability, which increases that stress as well, right? No doubt. Mm -hmm. And do we see over time, if we're looking at general trends of symptoms, do we see that this gets worse over time? Does it get better? Is it more of a static condition? Yeah, really, really great question. What we'll see is um, we will see that roughly a third of people will sort of have spontaneous remission. And you know what, the studies aren't so good in this area because they may have gotten treatment within that time. So some of the studies don't actually ask the question is, did you get treatment? Um, So they classify people as having it at time one and having it at time two as spontaneous remission, which can be interpreted as if you wait six to 30 months, it'll just go away. Or it can be a mix of those people plus people who've received treatment within that period of time. So unfortunately, you know, and, and I, I, you know, I emailed the researchers and I'm like, so do you know how many of them actually got treatment? And they're like, actually, no, he didn't ask. And I'm like, oh, no, no. <laughs> them, it's kind of stable. And then roughly about a third of them, the pain will actually kind of get worse. And typically in this like third of, of people who kind of get worse, what we see is that there is like, you know, there is sort of higher proportion of people who have the primary form of whatever vulvodynia subtype they have, as well as people who have much more comorbidities, many more comorbidities in terms of chronic pain conditions and not just chronic, like genitopelvic pain conditions such as like irritable bowel syndrome or that interstitial cystitis or the painful bladder, um, you know, but things that, that are not necessarily related to the vulva, more like fibromyalgia, which is sort of a body-wide kind of pain. Um, and, you know, um, so there's something to be said about almost like, like having one chronic pain condition may almost predispose people or at least is associated with having multiple other ones. Because when we look at people with fibromyalgia and we ask about genital pelvic pain, or we ask people with IBS and we ask them about other forms of pain, there are these globs of conditions that just all hang together. This isn't specific to people with vulvodynia. It seems to be specific to this kind of class of chronic pain conditions. So there's something else going on. Um, in terms of sort of this more, more generalized kinds of open openness or vulnerabilities to other pain conditions. Yeah. It really is a fascinating area of study. And I know I can, like, even knowing everything I know, I can get lost in the research sometimes because you just want more, right? You just want to know more, but yeah. it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Now, do you find that lifestyle 
lifestyle or behavioral factors play a role, stress, sleep, diet, exercise, those kinds of things? Um, not so much diet or exercise, um, but definitely stress um, can play a role. This can play a role in pretty much any kind of chronic pain condition that people have, even if it doesn't affect vulvas or, you know, genitals, um, where a person who we, we see that mood and stress and pain kind of all go together. Um, and the higher you are in pain, the more your stress is and the higher your stress is and your anxiety is, then the higher your pain is. So these things just go together. So we expect mm -hmm. to see, we expect to see clinically significant levels of, you know, sort of anxiety, depression, stress, interference, all of these things, just because that those things go hand in hand and it makes sense. Suddenly you're fine one day, or, you know, you've had this forever and it wears you down. It's sort of like being in month eight or nine, I've lost count of pandemic, right? Like where you sort of, you're hanging on at the beginning and then it becomes like the new normal. And you're like, can I really do this forever? Or at least for the next year, right? And and that really gets people uh, feeling hopeless and, you know, and it just feeds into sort of this, um, this, this, this pain sort of cycle, right? And so um, the more we're focused on it, the more importance we give it, the more stressed we are about it, it almost feeds the pain and the pain then feeds those parts that, and none of this really helps, unfortunately. Um, and so what we do see um, is stress is, is quite linked, um, but that doesn't mean it's all in a person's head. It just means that, you know, we, everything that we experience, it's all linked together and we can't parse things out, um, you know, in a simple way because people are not simple and life is not simple, unfortunately. Um, you know, um, so we do, we do see uh, a lot of catastrophizing, uh, we do see in, you know, when we look at the pelvic floor, a lot of tension, people are holding, you know, this, holding yep. stress, you know, <laughs> Absolutely. everywhere in their body, right? And, and we see a lot of what we call in, in psychologists, catastrophizing this, like, this almost this, like, hyper focus on the pain and it's almost like hypervigilance, you know, to the pain, um, you know, and we need to work on breaking that down because that seems to be a very, very strong predictor of that severity or that intensity of pain, as well as the fallout in terms of people's uh, daily lives and sexuality. Absolutely. And, and I love that you were talking about that cycle of the kind of pain and, and psychology and everything like that, because it's so true. There's often that physical reason for pain, but then, you know, our body learns that something may hurt. And then even sub it is subconscious. We don't necessarily do this consciously, but our body will anticipate pain and then it will try to protect us. And a lot of times that trying to protect us is that fight or flight response, right? Like we get anxious, we get our heart going, we get hot, we get sweaty, we, right. And our muscles kind of clamp up. Yep. Yeah. And so unfortunately that just then reinforces this pain because whatever activity, whether it's sexual intercourse or riding a bike, we, right. We expect pain. So then it reinforces that there will be. And then I know for what I do and what you do, we're working to kind of break that cycle and help both the physical structures, but then of course, try to get that brain connection out of it a little bit so we can not necessarily have our body respond like that. Exactly. A lot of it is breaking that loop that has been made and, you know, and that involves working on multiple different components. And so typically when I'm working with some, someone with vulvodynia, they'll be working with someone like you, a pelvic floor physiotherapist, mm -hmm. as well as perhaps a medical professional, right? And we're all working together to sort of target you know, all of the different parts of the cycle, the psychology, the muscle tension, the tissue factors, um, as well as validating, you know, um, you know, collaborating with the patient, um, working on their relationship as well. There are certain things that, you know, if a person with vulvodynia is in a relationship um, with another person or other people, like there are things that we can actually work on in terms of partner responses, in terms of increasing empathy, increasing intimacy that have been proven by research to actually bolster against, you know, sexual fallout, you know, and actually improve pain outcomes just by adjusting, you know, and it takes a lot of work. I know I say it so simply, <laughs> but you know, like, like breaking a dynamic is hard, but breaking a lot of patterns around this pain can actually help with pain and sexual outcomes. 
Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So if a woman's experiencing these symptoms, whether it be provoked or unprovoked, how does she get a diagnosis? How is vulvodynia diagnosed? Well, you know, you need, first of all, you need access to a knowledgeable healthcare provider. Um, you know, so that could be like, you know, I usually won't diagnose unless I'm working with a medical or a pelvic floor healthcare provider, simply because there are things as a psychologist that I can't do. I can't check. I can't right. like, I can't do a medical exam. Like that would be completely against, you know, everything, <laughs> everything that I've been trained to do. I'm more of a talk person and like a cheerleader. And I drive, a, I, I always use the metaphor of driving a bus with someone that, that like, you know, we, we have a roadmap, the, you know, my patient is driving the bus and I'm there with the roadmap to sort of stop off at places and visit, you know, and then kind of like, you know, just do this integrated care piece and support them along the way uh, while giving them a lot of useful skills and coping strategies and, you know, like uh, allowing themselves essentially to empower themselves against the pain, uh, as well as to accept the pain, you know, on a certain extent. Sometimes the more we fight against it, the bigger the pain is. Uh, because avoidance, as we know, works great in the in the short term, but not so fantastically in the long term. So there's a lot of work that goes into that. Uh, but typically, it would be someone who is able to do a hands-on physical exam, and it should be someone who's knowledgeable. And so typically, what happens is um, there's this amazing, amazing resource that's based out in the States called the National Valvodynia Association. And they have like access to people who are knowledgeable in healthcare in different parts of the world. So if you're completely lost and you don't know where to go, you could email me, you could email the National Valvodynia Association, you can get access to resources um, if you don't really know who would be knowledgeable in your area. Um, you know, and so that would be key. There needs to be a physical exam. In order for this to be considered vulvodynia, we need to rule out infections, inflammation, neurological stuff, like a whole bunch of things. Because if you have chronic vulvar pain due to an infection, that's what it's called, chronic vulvar pain due to an infection. Absolutely. And so many things can cause chronic vulvar pain, but you need to be checked out, right? And then if you rule all of those things out and you're still left with the pain, that's when it's called vulvodynia. It's sort of like, okay, we've ruled out everything that could potentially cause whatever you're experiencing. So now we're left with vulvodynia and we may not know what caused it, but now at least we know where we're going with this. Mm-hmm. And also falling in that category is people who think they have the infection and who are treated for the infection, but the pain remains. They may have vulvar pain due to an infection, but then they move to the vulvodynia world and diagnosis once that has resolved, but their symptoms have, haven't, right? Um, So that is key. So a medical professional who's knowledgeable, um, and there are different ways to access those individuals. Um, You can also bring some articles, you know, to your healthcare provider, and then they can consult with other people in your care. Um, You know, um, and then typically what will happen um, is that you get the diagnosis, and then you will be trialed on different kinds of you know, sort of non-invasive, kind of low-risk sort of medical treatments. Um, And at the same time, you may be referred to um, as like a sex therapist or psychologist, um, but someone who knows about pain and sexuality, as well as a pelvic pelvic health psychologist, a pelvic health physiotherapist as well. (laughs) Those are the best, that's the best scenario right then and there. Um, because the recommended treatments, and this is based on a couple of decades of research, are psychotherapy with a pain, pain and sexuality person, pelvic physiotherapy, pelvic floor physio, as well as something called a vestibulectomy, but only for those with the provoked vestibular pain, which is a medical procedure uh, which involves um, removing to about one to two millimeters of the vestibule itself um, because of the high density of nerve fibers in there. Um, And so those are, usually people will start off with the psychology and the pelvic floor. And then if that, if they still have quite severe pain after that, they will move on to the surgery. Um, But those are the recommended treatments. And so for generalized vulvodynia as well, it would be the psychotherapy psychotherapy and the pelvic floor physiotherapy, but not the surgery, no surgery. And perhaps a low dose tricyclic antidepressant to take the edge off that constant pain, um, because that has been proven to work 
to work for other pain that is burning and constant, um, which is really, really characteristic of what we call in the pain world, neuropathic pain. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and like you said, I hear, unfortunately, that story quite often, right? That it's taking people a long time or finding a healthcare practitioner that yeah. is really familiar with what their symptoms are, or sadly taking them very seriously and not kind of just kind of, I don't know, you know, letting them be or, or saying mm -hmm. that they're not a big deal. And so what I, I, we try to educate people on all the time is if you have any pain whatsoever, genital dyspnea, pain with sex, anything, go see a physiotherapist because we'll advocate for you. We'll talk to your physician if that's something that you're either not comfortable with or don't know the words to use. And Absolutely. so, yeah. So a lot of the times I'll see it, I'll get a referral from a physician for vulvodynia, but it happens a lot in reverse too, or I'll actually be the first person to see the patient. Right. And so it's like you mentioned, lots of multidisciplinary work. And I think, I think having practitioners who are happy to talk to each other and communicate really is so paramount when it comes to treatment and outcomes and all, all of that. Absolutely. And if someone's coming to me as a psychologist for the first time, I will refer, make that referral immediately to pelvic floor physio, because I want someone to have eyes on and hands on because making a referral to an MD sometimes can take a year. Yeah. Right. And so I'm like, okay, you know, this sounds like it. I want you just to be vetted and sort of assessed, you know, in your pelvic floor, I can't do this. I will refer you uh, to someone who has really, really amazing knowledge in pelvic floor, um, you know, help. Um, and then, you know, then as the referral kind of comes up for the medical doctor, there can be that other part as well. So you're totally right. It can work in so many different ways. Uh, but I think, but the point here is that Quick access is really nice and very key for really like preventing that chronicity because the longer something goes on, the worse it can become and the harder it may be to actually get into those factors of that, 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 that chronic pain cycle, right? And that's why I love that we're having this conversation and trying to talk about it to everyone because a lot of people just don't know or they don't realize that this is not necessarily quote unquote normal, right? That they shouldn't be feeling this. And so the earlier we let people know, then the earlier they can seek treatment and, and find some help. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, obviously kind of going through this medical process is really important. Like you said, we need to make sure it's not an infection or anything like this. Um, but having the diagnoses of vulvodynia, do, do you find that that opens doors to more treatment for people or how important is having that actual diagnosis? That's a really good question. Um, I think that for some people having a diagnosis um, can be terrifying and for other people, it could be really reassuring. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it allows healthcare providers to communicate really effectively and to be aligned in terms of the treatment approaches they will use. Right. So, you know, so sometimes people are like, oh gosh, it has a name, that's amazing. And I'm like, well, be careful what you Google. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And if you have questions, come to me because there's a lot of misinformation out there on the web and there's like really good websites, you know, out there and some not so good ones. So sometimes, so it's interesting how people react to that, but ultimately having that diagnosis, um, you know, does actually, I think, quicken, you know, sort of access to treatment, um, you know, and so I'm very, very careful when I say it sounds like you have something that we call, you know, and, and I always check people's reactions and I support them in that. And, I, you know, we, we really have like deep conversations about what that means. And other times it's very quick. It's sort of like, oh, okay. Yeah. I think I've heard about this. Okay, mm. good. You know, so it could be good. Sometimes it could be bad, but ultimately it is good. <laughs> ultimately is good. I can see that. Yes. <laughs> so if I refer someone to you, Cassie, with provoked vestibulodynia, you know, exactly like that's all I have to put, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, you know, person in their thirties experiencing provoked vestibulodynia, please assess, please treat. 
um, and let's communicate. Like, you know, right away, of course, everyone presenting is slightly different, but you already have your expertise right there. You know the main points you're going to be covering. You know exactly what you're going to be doing. And if you refer someone to me, I'm like, okay, I probably, I have a good idea that catastrophizing is going to be here, that sexuality is going to be impaired, that, you know, that there's going to be a little bit of elevated anxiety and, and like depressive symptoms, you know, so at least I have an idea. And then the particulars, well, those are up to me to kind of go after, right? And to assess and to then tweak and then to make that treatment much more unique. And so right away, I know, you know, sort of, I know generally what to expect. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Oh. And in terms, we already touched, you, t you mentioned the three main factors or not factors, but treatment methods. So mm -hmm. to treat vulvodynia, psychotherapy, pelvic floor physio, and then if it's the vestibul vestibular dynia, then surgery, right? Yes. Are there any common barriers you see that women experience when accessing these treatment methods? Yeah, so for pelvic for pelvic floor physio, it can be cost, right? Because usually this is not well. Usually people may not have coverage, and if it is, it's a certain portion. Maybe they'll it'll be fully covered. It really depends on insurance plans, but it's certainly not covered by provincial healthcare plans. It's the same problem with psychology, right? So accessing psychological services, um, especially privately, private mm -hmm. fees can be anywhere between 150 to $250 per session. I'm very lucky that I am aligned with the um, Queen Psychology Clinic because we provide, um, we, are, we provide services on a sliding scale. So it depends on people's ability to pay. Um, you know, so if they cannot pay a lot, it will not actually be a lot, you know, and if they can, well, that's great. Um, but it'll certainly be less than, you know, sort of the private fees. Um, and, you know, the, the pro for medical stuff is that it's covered. Uh, but the con is that it takes a really long time to get there. Like, you know, it could take a year, it could take a year and a half. Um, it, it could take a very long time. And in that time, there are, you know, life is continuing and mm -hmm. like symptoms may be worsening, um, you know, and like dynamics with partners may be getting out of hand, right? And so it really is, um, it really can be full of, um, full of issues. And you might be in a place where there is no pelvic floor physio, there mm -hmm. is no sex therapist who knows how to deal with pain, or, you know, a sex therapist at all, or the one gynecologist in your town may just be very invalidating and say it's all in your head, which is the message that people have been, you know, um, getting with this condition for years and years and decades, you know, oh, I can't find anything wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? That's is the whole point of vulvodynia is that you can't see it. It's not mm -hmm. right there. It's not redness. It's not inflammation. It's not an infection. That is the whole point of vulvodynia is that it will not show up on a clinical test, you know? So I think changing the narrative and increasing access, um, right. you know, as well as, you know, this time of pandemic is really interesting because typically the clinic would only serve people in the Kingston area, but because we're, remote, we could serve all of Ontario, but, you know, psych psychological healthcare is provincially mandated. I can't actually treat people outside of Ontario, right? So there's, it's yeah. interesting how this, this sort of pandemic will perhaps expand kind of our, our care and maybe have things more overseen at a federal level um, where, you know, just where location may not necessarily matter as much. Mm -hmm. um, and I really try hard to look at the positive outcomes of the pandemic. Definitely. So this may be one of them. It may change the, it may it change might. the face of healthcare and, and psychological services, right? Where yeah. someone may be able to do remote work with us, you know, whereas before, like they, that there was just no way they'd have to move to Ontario or something. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. true. And I mean, it's definitely a positive because those are difficult barriers for people to kind of get through. And I know you speak of the, the silver linings of the pandemic. Uh, that is something I was able to do a lot more virtual consult. And, and that's something I could do is see someone they, again in Ontario, but in Northern Ontario that never would have been able to see me otherwise. Right. And so opening that up and having that system in play, then it, there's a lot of education and a lot of things that we can still do. So 
hopefully that is kind of one answer to those barriers that maybe we'll get better and better as we keep going. (laughs) But also there's there's this massive barrier of the stigma, right? Of talking about sex and talking about pain and talking about vulvas and talking about like to a healthcare provider about these things, right? And so we have a lot more work to do there. Um, And a lot of, you know, what we do is, you know, sort of encouraging people to be able to, you know, and giving them the skills to be able to communicate in an effective way with a healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes that may take the form of me sending a letter. Um, Sometimes I actually attend an appointment with a patient, like if they're local, um, you know, and I explain and I'm I'm just there for support, right? And um, so there's different ways that we could actually tackle this. Uh, but sometimes even getting people to tell me, you know, is hard um, and I get it. So it's really just normalizing that discomfort and asking the right questions and creating that comfort, um, not only for the individual, but I think on this larger level, right? And, and perhaps matching the patient with the right healthcare provider, right? In order to kind of unlock that because it's, it's tough to talk about these things. It's, you know, it's uh, even though porn's on the internet and easily accessible, it's still this taboo topic. And how do you tell your healthcare provider it hurts when you're masturbating? Like, you know what I mean? I like, how do yep. you have those conversations? So I, one of my favorite, so I do a lot of like talks and my, my goal is to open up that conversation. Right. So it's so important for people to feel that that stigma isn't there and feel more comfortable with it. And I think, I can't remember exactly the topic. I don't know if it was on pain specifically or just sexual health, pelvic health, but I did it in a church and there was a lot of older men there. So I'm like, okay, how's this going to go? We're going to see, right? And honestly, it was one of my favorite moments because after one of the older gentlemen, he's like, he basically wanted to be my PR agent. He's like, you need to talk about this all over. Like, we're going to get you on a tour, right? And it's just because he's like, I yeah, I don't experience this, but I have a wife. I have a daughter. I know women who have vulvas and, or vaginas. And yeah. So I think it's just not restricting ourselves to talking just to, you know, the vulva owners, but to everybody, everybody. Absolutely. You know, in a large part of the research we're doing, like a large part of this is that knowledge dissemination, especially with social media and like really cool videos and like links and trying to get this more, part of this social narrative, right? Like with everybody. So that if someone says, oh, I've never told anyone, but I kind of have this pain, someone could say, I've heard about this. Here, let's take a look at who you could contact, you know, instead of being like, oh, like what's up with you and making that shame and making that judgment and making that person feel even more alone with where they're at. Like I said, 10 to 28%, you know, people with vulvas will have vulvodynia. Definitely, you are not alone. You're not alone. There's, there are huge communities and Facebook groups on Valvidinia. There are healthcare providers who know about this, you know, and there are recommended treatments, you know, for it. So it yeah. may be time to broach that topic in a way, even if it's just shoving an article towards your healthcare provider, right? That's okay. um, sending them some links and saying, I think I've got this, you know, yeah. um, like that could be, that's a form of communication. Or um, can you talk to Caroline Kukal or Cassie? <laughs> um, kind of let you know. They'll write you a really long, like, you know, <laughs> you know what's will. going on with me. <laughs> Absolutely. This is for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's why I love doing stuff like this, right? Because we can kind of help get the information out there. And I think it's so important. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned it a little bit already, uh, what you do with patients who have vulvodynia as a psychologist, as a sex therapist. So you mentioned kind of working with coping mechanisms, stress reduction, kind of talking about partner relationships, but can you expand just a little bit? I mean, I can speak to these guys all the time about what I do as a public floor physio, but what as a sex therapist would you talk about and help people with? Right. And so um, when, when working with people with vulvodynia, it's not just the sex therapy angle that comes out really, really strong. It's the pain management aspect mm-hmm. as well. And so I've done rotations and I've seen chronic pain patients in general, right? And so working on both the sexuality and the pain um, is super important. And at the very beginning, what we do is we just normalize and validate the experience and we provide a lot of pain education, which I know you do as well, which is this vicious cycle of pain. And what we do is we, 
we customize that vicious cycle of pain for our clients. Um, and sexuality is a huge piece of that most of the time, right? Because we, we always ask what are people's goals, you know, in working with us. Um, and most of the time it's to decrease the pain and sort of get, you know, sort of their sex lives back to wherever, you know, they want that to be. Um, and so a lot of the time I, I kind of have to have a long talk about managing expectations in terms of, well, your pain may never be back to a zero. Um, and we may not be able to get you where you were sexually 10 years ago, but how about we create, you know, like pleasurable and satisfying experiences as we move forward because sexuality evolves over time. Like the stuff I ate as a kid, you know, I don't eat anymore, right? Um, <laughs> don't cruise. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You know, like like ramen noodles and, you know, like all of those things. And, and like, you know, at some point I hated sushi and then in my mid twenties, I loved it. So our tastes evolve, you know, um, our, our activities evolve, like our world evolves. Why shouldn't our sexuality also evolve, especially in the face of challenges, right? Like people who are flexible in their approach will do better. And it's been borne out by research studies showing that people who, who, you know, are able to sort of, you know, sort of work their way around obstacles um, by changing a goal, let's say from penetration, which is really painful to pleasure, um, you know, which is mutually satisfying, they actually have better outcomes, right? Instead of being super rigid, having this like broader goal. So sex therapy is all about sort of expanding people's repertoires. But, you know, it is also about challenging thoughts that are not helpful and that increase the pain. It's also about looking at patterns and trying to decipher where could we act in those patterns and associations to break those cycles. It's about, um, you know, sort of decreasing catastrophizing thoughts sometimes. And a lot of it is about relaxation and it's about mindfulness and it's about sitting with the pain it's about accepting the pain with curiosity as opposed to denial and resistance sometimes moving towards the pain um you know can actually tell the person oh it's not as bad as i thought um you know and we do a lot of work in terms of looking at you know having them look at their vulvas when they're at home and trying to localize where that pain is because they're like oh it's like all the way down there, you know, it's all there. It's my whole vulva. But when they actually sort of test their vulva to see where it is, they realize it's a small part of it. And then we can have that narrative of you are more than this. It's, it's a very badly placed piece of tissue in this provoked vestibulodynia, right? <laughs> um, it's very poorly placed to have pain. Um, if it were in your ear, it would only hurt when you were like using cotton swabs, which you shouldn't do anyways, right? But, <laughs> but like it's there and like, it's sort of like the entrance point for certain, you know, activities, you know? Um, and so it's really about having that conversation and doing the pain management skills as well as the coping, as well as talking about the catastrophizing, as well as managing the sexuality piece and expanding that repertoire. It all sounds very abstract, um, but we work on multiple levels where we really try to have the person realize that they have the best tool that they will have. And that is their brain, you know, and that is like their skills and using those skills um, in order to promote sort of that decrease in pain and the improved sexual outcomes with, with a guide and with someone who could, you know, coach them in those skills. Um, and so we also will do behavioral experiments, you know, and we used to, uh, quite regularly have people go home with like a dilator set, you know, and, and use those. So those would be phallic shaped, you know, sort of um, devices that people would use in order to kind of relax their pelvic floor. But now I don't even do those anymore. I said, just go to physio. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> do it the right way, because I can't check what they're doing. Um, and so really, you know, it is about targeting those um, pieces that research has shown lead to increased pain outcomes and decreased sexual satisfaction. We target those specifically in the therapy and it sort of a, is an integrated sex therapy pain management approach that has been supported by research in, in like a randomized outcome trial, right? And several other studies 
and we may borrow, you know, um, mindfulness um, components, we may borrow um, a little bit of um, acceptance and commitment therapy, right, sort of components in there, but that all depends on that collaborative relationship that we have with that particular client or patient and what works for them and what doesn't. We, mm-hmm. we individualize it as much as we can. And yeah. I think that's so important. And I know I obviously work with many women who are experiencing these symptoms. And when they're also working with you know, a psychologist, sex therapist, it's just the, the difference is huge because it really, really does help. And it complements what we do physically and emotionally and talking about that pain cycle so, so well. And I find the outcomes and expectations are just much improved for people who kind of concurrently work with both disciplines. Yes, I agree. I agree. You know, if they have the means and they have the time, I'm like, please do pelvic floor at the same time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll tell people, you know what, I think you should do pelvic physio first and you may not even need to come to me because their pain is localized. It seems to, you know, and there's not a lot of fallout everywhere else. And I'll say, you know what, go straight to Cassie. Um, And if you need me, I will be here for you, but I think you don't need me right now because they're not at that point where all of those points of that vicious pain cycle have been recruited or are kind of entrenched, right? And I know they appreciate, people love to, they love honesty, right? They love to hear exactly what they need. And and I think that's so important. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, no, thank you for everything that you do. And for this podcast, this is awesome. It's so, I know, I love it. I love it. (laughs) So I I have, um, I, I'm, don't worry, I only have like two more questions, but no you problem. mentioned the National Vavadinia Association as a really great resource. Are there any other awesome resources? Because we're going to have listeners who aren't necessarily in Kingston that can yeah. reach out to us or, or maybe not, maybe they're somewhere rural. Is there any other resources you know for people? Yeah, absolutely. So if anyone has access to internet, then National Vavadinia Association, so www.nva.org. Um, There's also an amazing book um, that falls within, you know, sort of the pelvic floor. So it's uh, by a colleague of mine who's in New York, uh, Amy Stein's Heal Pelvic Pain. Um, So there's a variety of books that she has come out with. um, And so those books are always really great. Um, There is, um, there's a book that is a bit dated now. We're working on getting a second edition of this, but it's simply called When Sex Hurts. Um, and it sort of covers almost every aspect of chronic genital pelvic pain and vulvodynia is certainly a part of that. And that's a book that I worked on with uh, two of my collaborators, um, doctors Erwin and Andrew Goldstein. They're not related, um, but uh, they do have the same last name. So it causes a lot of uh, confusion. They're like, oh, are they brothers? Are they? And I'm like, no, no. Goldsteins <laughs> <laughs> that I happen to work with, um, yeah. you know, and there's, um, you know, I talked about mindfulness very briefly. Um, there's a great book by Laurie Brato, who is a great um, researcher and clinician uh, based at UBC um, and has multiple, multiple roles. And she has a book called um, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, which I think, you know, is applicable to everybody. It's specifically geared to people who want to cultivate desire in their relationships. But in fact, mindfulness is something that Um, I think many of us um, can benefit from, not everybody. Sometimes I work on mindfulness and people are like, this is not working for me. And I'm like, okay, let's (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) You know, like you kind of, you have to, like, there's, I don't know. It's just like, like not one treatment will feel like fit all, but you know, there, there's like the certain approaches in this book that I think will just really work for certain people who have vulvodynia Um, and mindfulness, um, programs have been shown to actually be helpful in certain outcomes for people with vulvodynia as well. So those are like the main ones and it kind of touches upon sort of the psychology as well as the pelvic floor. Um, But ultimately, um, you know, these are just really um, good resources, but ultimately it is getting that knowledgeable healthcare provider, regardless of their background, you know, who can actually be your advocate, you know, help you with the treatments and promote referrals, you know, to the other people who are knowledgeable um, in the community. I think that's really key. Yeah. Well, those are great. Thank you. Um, So I have one final question, but before that, where can people find you? I know you said www.sexlab.ca. I think you guys are on Instagram and Facebook too. We are. My my handles are somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I, I have a few. So Twitter for at QSexLab. Um, I believe um, for Instagram, we are 
sex lab. But I think I you're sexlab.ca, but I can tag you, tag people. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I can keep track of all of these things. Um, <laughs> so, and the website is uh, www.sexlab.ca. Um, and if you just Google my name, you will find me and you'll find everything that comes along with, with me. Um, my amazing team, you know, um, like every, everyone who contributes to this work and, um, and we have a, we have some information on our website as well for resources. You're on there, Cassie, <laughs> um, you know, and, um, it's a good starting place, right? So perfect. Yeah. Okay. And as a final question, if someone was experiencing vulvodynia, whether they had a diagnosis or not, but the same kind of symptoms, what top three pieces of advice or maybe homework would you suggest that they look into? Right. Really, really good question. So um, I think the first thing would be to validate their experience because I work with people who not only in vulvodynia, but in other conditions who simply have never, like their experiences have never been validated. They've been dismissed. And so like really validating, um, I would also have them work uh, in terms of sort of trying to think about how they think about the pain. Um, is it sort of this catastrophizing pattern? And if it is, can they be kinder to themselves? Um, and, and then I would, you know, try to have them do some relaxation, but then I would also have them do a little bit of really well-informed research in terms of accessing healthcare right away. Um, and so it really would be, and practicing talking about it. I find that mm -hmm. that is also really key. Um, a lot of people think that talking about it will make it kind of bigger and it makes it real. And certainly that might be true, but in the longer term, it actually it not only reifies it, but it, it sort of decreases, you know, a lot of the distress around it because now it's shared, you know, and other people are working with you. Um, and so those are sort of the main pieces of advice is that, you know, validating it, it is real, it is okay. We know what to do with this, even though we may not know how this started. Be kind to yourself in terms of your thoughts, you know, your feelings, um, try to communicate with your partner, try to engage in pleasurable activities that are not painful. That is key. People are like, what, well, what do you mean? It hurts when we have sex. And I'm like, are there other ways of being sexual that are pleasurable, that don't involve that anticipation of pain and that experience of pain? Because that is clearly not something that is pleasurable for many people who have this condition. So it really is thinking outside that box and giving permission to think outside that box. So if oral works, or if, you know, or if a vibrator on the clitoral area works, yeah. let's do those, you know? And so immediately it's removing those painful experiences from that repertoire in order to connect the person with themselves or with their partner or partners um, to their sexual pleasure zones, right? And their experiences. So that is a huge one. <laughs> Usually people look at me and they're like, but we're trying to have painful sex. So why are you taking it off? And I'm like, we have to take it off for now. And then it will come back. <laughs> Absolutely. But clearly it isn't working right now. <laughs> so we have to change the associations. Definitely. Um, so that's probably more than three pieces of advice. But those are the key ones. <laughs> but they're amazing advice. And I think it's something that women are really going to, it's really going to help people to hear. Because sometimes you just need to hear it, right? And and have an idea of what they can do and, and look for and resources and all that stuff. So I think it's amazing and super helpful. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and chatting with us. Thank you so much, Cassie. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. And yeah. I love the podcast. I can't wait to listen oh. to everything. Oh, I'm excited for more episodes to drop so you can. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you.